The Guardian. Time for another media talk coming up this week. Former GMG radio chief John Myers on waste at radios one and two. You'd have thought to yourself, why aren't these all together? It's a natural question. Even the staff are saying to me. From the two networks, we'd like to work more collectively if we could. It is not about the people, it's about the layers of management across both of those networks. Will BBC Radio boss Tim Davy take on board any of his advice? Also in the podcast, TV Centre is finally put up for sale, there's nothing sacred. And, never mind the fake shakes, as two lesbian bloggers are identified as middle-aged American men, we analyse anonymity on the web and the problems it poses to journalists. Plus... So slash... From right to left, very sharp blade. Slaughtered like cattle right next to a meat market. BBC Four announces the acquisition of another high-class Danish drama. But why is it that the best we can produce ourselves is the ludicrous Luther? I'm Matt Wells. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Joining me in the pod this week, I have The Guardian's James Robinson and Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of Radio and Digital Super Indie Something Else. Nice to see you both. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just, we need to check. You, you both are who you say you are. <laughs> well, no, you'll never know. There's no way of knowing. No one is spending the weekends posing as Syrian lesbians. Not, well, certainly not on my account, James. Well, well, I you've, you've given me some good ideas for good. how I might... <laughs> Just checking. Uh, more on that later. We're starting this week with radio. We'll hear from John Myers about his report in just a moment. Uh, first things first, though, we, um, we made a bit of it's, it's corrections and clarifications corner. But when we were talking about changes to the Rajar diary system last week, we weren't exactly entirely accurate about, about the whole discussion. Uh, many of you were quick to point this out on the blog. And suffice to say, producer Ben and I were both sent to our rooms without any supper. Let's set the record straight with Steve, who knows about what he's talking about. Uh, what have Rajar done? Uh, and most importantly, what have they not done? It's really just not that exciting. <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've made the, the diary available to tick online. Right. That's uh, it. Okay. So, uh, the, so, so the paper diary that you filled in, uh, uh, based on recall, now you fill it in on, on, on the website. You fill, you, it on, yeah. you fill it in on the website. It's still as inaccurate a method of counting audiences <laughs> as it was previously. Excellent. That's all sorted then. Uh, okay. On with today's show and that investigation into Radius 1 and 2. John Myers' 16-page report concluded that the music stations were uh, mired with inefficiencies. Uh, among many things, Myers called into question the wisdom of each station operating out of separate buildings, pooling little or no resources at all and running under two different management operations. The most headline-grabbing of his findings were the situation with Radio 2's newsreaders who read a two-minute bulletin at the top of the hour prepared by someone else at a cost uh, and then twiddle their thumbs for the next 58 uh, and the fact that 52 full-time staff worked on Radio 1's newsbeat. Now, Myers did highlight that the output of both stations was excellent, he said, uh, but he did add that there were significant areas where savings could be made. Radio 1 currently has an annual budget of £37 while Radio 2 costs £48.3 million. He came into the Media Talk studios earlier. I began by asking him whether he thought the stations in their present form represented value for money to the licence fee payer. I think it's been run efficiently, um, you know, in terms of um, the structures that are needed to run the operation. Hmm. When you look at the service licence that they have to deliver, I mean, part of the point I was trying to get over in the document that I wrote was that it's not like comparing... BBC against commercial radio, because it really is uh, apples and oranges. They've got this huge tablet of stone that they have to deliver. And so the question I ask, what structure would I put in place 
to deliver that. To deliver that. And, and, and does it have the right structure? To I think it that? has the right structure up to about middle management. Right. And then from middle management on, it goes a little awry. A little was, awry? Yeah. So the answer to the question then is presumably no. No, it's not delivering value for money because it could be done in a, in a, a much more efficient way from the middle. middle well, I, you know, I was brought in to have a look at efficiencies, and and it was to say, listen, John, you've had a lot of years in in radio. Uh, could you have a look and just say, is there any areas where you think we could be better or deliver value for money? And what I said is that um, below middle management, I get it. I get the structures. So I actually. I don't follow the commercial radio bandwagon that says they've got too many people in every department. I think they've had management creep in, re- in regards to the compliance issues. I mean, compliance is madness. And I think they just need to get over the Ross brand affair and actually put the responsibility back to the producers. But my central recommendation was that, you know, if you're going to save money, how do you, how do, you do it on these vast networks that are actually delivering uh, tremendous output? And the way I think you do it is is look at the back office facilities and say, actually, there's nothing wrong with the output. It's very good. Um, but, you know, you can be smarter in the way that if you all came into one building and you all ran a, a more streamlined management service, then um, you can make significant savings. So uh, what, you're, what you're saying is that, I mean, I, mean, I was surprised what, uh, 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 when I read your report that you're saying that there are all these functions that are mirrored across all these different networks and none of them ever talk to each other and there's been no attempt ever to, uh, ever to streamline these, these mirrored departments. No, I think, I think the history of it is probably the fact that they were in competition with each other as well as they were in competition with the commercial sector. I think that's changing. I think one thing that Tim Davey is doing positively and has done over the last three or four years, I guess, since his reign, is that he's been able to knock down some of these walls. And the fact that he's asked someone from outside to come and have a look at it, I think, is is a sign of, of good leadership. There are departments, when you operate silos, that are operated where actually, if you were all together, you wouldn't need them. So it is not about the people. It's about the layers of management across both of those networks. And you were surprised at the, the multiple level, oh, levels of management? Well, I was, because I, you'd have thought to yourself, well, why aren't these all together? It's a natural question. Even the staff are saying to me from the two networks, we'd like to work more collectively if we could. Tim Davey has uh, appeared to pour cold water on that suggestion. He said that he, he said that there should not be, for example, a sing- single controller of Radio 1 and R- Radio 2. He seems to be very concerned that merging them at the management of the, of the stations would dilute the characters of them. Well, to be fair, I never suggested in the report they should have a single controller. Um, what I said is they should have a slimmed-down management structure. And actually, you know, if, should you have a single controller, one of the reasons that the talent... Uh, is attracted to Radio 2 and Radio 1, respectively, is because often of their relationship with the individual controllers. So if you were to have one controller, you can see how the talent there might become nervous about that. I actually think there's uh, a lot more you can do if you just take a grown-up view about the management structure overall, and it's not about one controller. Mm. Um, Newsbeat, 52 journalists. That's a lot of journalists. Well, I thought so. Um, <laughs> what are they all doing? <laughs> well, um, obviously, they're doing their uh, half-hourly uh, bulletins, and they're doing all the stuff that they say they're doing. But, I mean, they do do documentaries, and they yeah. do do a lot more than just the headlines of, of the press would suggest. Uh, but the fact is, so so does commercial radio. Commercial yeah. radio competes with them uh, against the best of the best in, in all the Sony categories, and often they come out really well. And, so, uh, and, and Radio 2 newsreaders don't write their own bulletins and don't do anything for the 58 minutes, they're not on air. That's another Well, um, they don't write their own bulletins. Uh, that's, uh, 
that's true. So obviously, if I was them, I'd be a bit bored. You know, you're reading the news at the top of the hour, then they don't seem to be doing uh, a lot more from that. And what I've said to to the guys at Newsboot is, you know, guys, you can be a bit smarter here. You've got these 52 people. Why don't you create a hub where, for the popular radio networks, you service the news for all of those? But they have, they'd have to put on plumbier voices for Radio 2. Oh, no, what listen, would they do for the Radio all, 3? Listen, all Bob has to say, listen, of those 52 people, 16 of those are suitable voices to be on Radio 2. Yeah. You... Uh, suitable voices to be on six music news suitable to be on radio one well, i mean this is happening pr- in the commercial sector every day of the week perhaps when you get a bit older you move on to radio two i mean i, I mean everything well, that you, you might <laughs> that you <I> definitely <laughs> not, i definitely pass radio one age these days anyway, so every, everything you've recommended mm. uh, you know uh, streaming streamlining the management all these efficiencies um, um making the news journalists work more efficiently this all comes comes from your um, your commercial instincts years running commercial radio but look at the desolate wasteland that is commercial radio now why should we take anything that you say seriously well because i'm probably the only one talking any sense to be honest i mean if you look at the desolate lands as you call it of commercial radio uh, i did say in my report that you know a lot of the commercial stations are still undermanned and they're still um underserved because of the still outrageous over regulation that i still think is there and um commercial radio um they have 45 46 percent share and they have considerably less money to spend on content so the fact is they they spend less money on content but they still have this fantastic share so they're still doing rather well um but you know on my last report to government i outlined the reasons why commercial radio was in desperate straits and that was because over the last 20 years we've seemed to have awarded licenses to people who should never have had them never really wanted them uh and we created something where actually we all eat each other's breakfast and that wasn't the best way to do it tim davy has thanked you for your report he said it was right, quote, very interesting uh, uh, i'm sure you'll get a nice letter from the from the bbc trust they, apparently it's going to be fed into another review of, of dqf uh, radio yes yeah. uh, do you get the sense that uh, that anything that you've uh, that you've recommended will will be put into action well um i said in the report that they would be open to accusations of tokenism if they didn't actually do something this time i think what's driving this is they have to find 20 percent savings and um, what I have said is you can find these savings by actually being looking at yourselves as managers and the structure at the top end rather than actually taking it out of the real people who provide this great service. I think as a manager and a leader of these areas, you have to look at yourself. It's, your, not, it's not your job to protect your job. It's your job to actually uh, deliver a future for the business or the operation that you run. And so will they do anything? I think they will. I think Tim's quite keen to make some changes. He sees uh, instinctively, I think, that um, he has to do something to get to that 20% figure. He might not go all the way, but I do actually think this time there's a real passion and a real determination from Tim to you know, make something happen. John Myers there. Uh, Steve Ackerman, what did you make of his report? Well, um, I think two headlines, first of all. One is, uh, I think this is, this is brilliant management by Tim Davey in nice. terms of managing expectations. He's got to make cuts, and now he's got that debate going without having to say 
anything at all yes. and he can just point to well you know Myers recommended it and, and you know if he doesn't quite go the whole way that Myers you uh, could say I'm not, I've not gone as far as yes, Myers like, look what I've done guys so, so I think very smart but also to his credit he's been open I mean he has published the entire report and I don't think there's many commercial organisations who would necessarily do that so I think he, he has to be given credit for that I think for me the second thing that came out from the, from the report was the more aggressive elements of commercial radio would have been very disappointed it doesn't necessarily come through in the interview because because rightly so, you're picking on on the on the bigger talking points. But lots of Myers' report talks about how strong uh, the music networks are and how great the output is, and they're to be commended for that, and how fantastic the staff is. And and you know, he doesn't say there's too many producers or or, or there's you know there's too much effort going into making great editorial. No, in fact, he's quite explicit that, 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 that he thinks the bottom layer or um, all the producers. I mean, there's a bit about that he thinks that Radio Two um, presenters should self op a bit more. But mm. by and large, he's very supportive of the, of the shop floor isn't he yeah yeah absolutely so so i think i think commercial radio or some elements of commercial radio will be disappointed there um, staff will probably like it the shop floor staff will like it because he because he's saying get get rid, get rid of all the uh, middle managers isn't he um james uh, do you think that i mean this is it's very interesting i mean it's interesting what steve steve is saying about managing expectations because uh, tim davy has got to find 20 percent of savings to, uh, doesn't he for and, yeah. and that's and to, to be able to do that without without impacting on services is going to be really difficult yeah and, and it's true. I mean, now he can blame John Myers, John Myers for anything he does, when the, which is which is which is a cynical view, but maybe maybe correct one. But I mean, yeah. I mean, you can, but you can do it. I mean, as simple as moving uh, every service into one building. You know, it's the sort of thing that happens when Radio Company A merges with Radio Company B. You know, but they, they haven't done it because they didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when they do, they can. I mean, I, I just you know, I'm quite heartened by the interview that you just conduct, you conducted earlier because. You know, I quite like to hear people defending journalism, for instance. I mean, there was a few, you know, uh, shocked asides about the number of journalists that Newsbeat employs, for mm. example. But you know, that's why Craig Oliver tells, you know, David Cameron's spin doctor says to Cameron, forget about the Today programme. You, you know, you've got to think about Radio 2 and Radio 1 because they have got that sensibility and that, that resource, mm. you know, and, and, and millions and millions of people, young voters in this case, listen to it. I think it's quite encouraging to, to hear someone defend um, or well, he didn't completely defend it, but I, yeah. you know, I'm defending it. But the, the, the journalist points were part of a wider picture, which I think the phrase John used was financial fog, you know, the sort of recharge system that's going yes. on from uh, BBC News yeah. to the music networks, and then uh, wider recharges going on for studios yeah. and, all, and all sorts of things. I mean, he, said that, he, said that, he said that BBC News charges Radio 2 uh, for the privilege of providing the scripts, only the scripts, that then Radio 2 newsreaders read more than a million pounds. I think, I think it might even be 1.8 million pounds, and there's no real accounting uh, uh, behind that. Well, that's it, the wider was, point yeah. about the BBC internal market. That's Burton, you know, that's John Burt's it was, know, yeah, internal it was, market. It, it was 1.9 million right. pounds, because I noted it down, and you know, I think the interesting thing is that, I mean, for, for, for many years, and obviously Myers talks as well about some parts of the output potentially being given out to Indies to, to test the market, and certainly for a, for a long time uh, Indies have argued this exact point that at the moment you can't compare like for like and show that uh, as you would expect a private company can, can potentially produce something cheaper because you just can't get through this financial fog that Myers describes you can't see actually how much something is genuinely costing within within parts of the BBC because not even people within the BBC know mm, well, be- although the next final point I mean you know you don't when Osama bin Laden dies you don't you don't go quick love switch on absolute radio do you I mean, no. this is the point. Yeah. Can I pick up on one other thing, Matt, which, which is the compliance question? Yes. Because I think this is a really big issue. You know, it's now a few years since since the whole brand affair. And he says they haven't got over it. No, and, and, and compliance is absolutely strangling uh, 
BBC Radio especially, you know, we have a crazy scenario where uh, more man-hours are having to go into pre-recorded programmes so they can be listened to before they go on air. And therefore, uh, the, the natural thing to do is you broadcast a live programme, which obviously, therefore, is inherently more risky and dangerous. Um, so, you know, th- there is a crazy compliance culture going on. I feel very, very sorry for uh, staff within the BBC. There is a lot of form-filling that is just absolutely crazy. Uh, Steve, just a final, final flippant question. Um, if, you were to, uh, if you were to keep Bob Shannon or Andy Parfitt, Oh, come on. I can't answer that one. <laughs> I can answer it. You, you, should, you, you, you get rid of Parfit because he costs six grand more. He earns two hundred eighteen thousand eighteen eight hundred pounds oh. Shannon earns two hundred and twelve thousand eight hundred pounds. So keep, keep Bob Shannon because he's more Shannon. value he's, for money. He's more value for money. But his remit is wider, you see, so are you getting better, better, better <laughs> well, value for money from him? So. Okay, all right. Well, uh, we'll, Never we'll, easy, is it? <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that there. Uh, let, let us know what you think on, on the blog. That's at guardian.co.uk slash media talk. Time for uh, a look at the other media stories in brief. Uh, there are a fair few stories to get through too. Let's start with the BBC. They're uh, selling finally television centre. Do you know what? This is, this is a Matt Wells. This was a Matt Wells scoop. I remember it well. When I was media correspondent in... Uh, 1974. No, 2007. <laughs> I wrote this. And finally, and uh, as with all stories, they, they turn out to be true eventually. Yeah, exactly um, right. And uh, why are they selling it? Uh, why, why, why are they selling it? What's the reason? Just desperate, desperate need for more cash. Hmm. As far as I can tell, and uh, Prime, uh, pre- um, uh, presumably, yeah. presumably Westfield will buy it, and they it does, ex- exactly. extend over it, the, the land that was worthless when they first set it up is now extremely valuable. Why not? You know, it makes sense, doesn't it? The trouble is that there's bits of it that are listed, aren't there? So they're not going to be able to. That, that, this is the whole problem. That you, it, it would be absolutely fine if you could knock it all down and build a, you know, the extension to the Westfield shopping centre. But they're not. You know, it's going to be quite yeah, difficult well, to sell it. Yeah, but that's not. You know, Highbury had the same thing, and they could still turn them into a block of flats. So yeah, that's true. So do you think it's uh, uh, there's been a lot of nostalgia hasn't there with Terry Wogan and all the rest of everyone I think else. it's nonsense I think it's absolute nonsense the BBC should not be in the property business and, I mean, and it's ridiculous I mean the, you know this is a building that's been described as an ugly modernist monolith you know until they're going to knock it down and yes. everyone loves it it's, well this is this is let's the turn, turn the Blue Peter Garden into a swimming pool it's yes. be great <laughs> perhaps they should make a property show around it um, <laughs> they could at least do a cash in the attic special um, and uh, breaking news actually from the BBC today James they've got to apologise to Primark over yes a, as I this is over a panorama program about uh, working practices employed by people who work for Primark, right? Yes, suppliers of Primark. Yeah. I think that, briefly, the um, they, they suppliers uh, the suppliers use child labour in, in India. Um, that's not disputed by Walmart. Program. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Primark, but other aspects of the program are. And uh, the, the complaint has been partially upheld. The, the, the Primark have been complaining about this for three years now. So They're very, the, very angry. There's a lot of anger at the BBC over this. Because, actually. because, uh, as you say, the substance of the program, the vast majority, majority of it, the central allegations even are, are not, not are, well. They may have been disputed originally, but the, but the BBC, the, the, they've not been disputed. By Correct. BBC Trust. Correct. So, and, and then only one small, I think a 45 second scene is being. Dis- it's not even. The Trust are not even saying this is faked in any way at all. They're just saying, yes, all right, well, we can't definitely say it's accurate or cor- corroborated. Corroborated. It's, ju- it's just a, a, a scene of some, some young kids making clothes. Mm. I mean, the, the, you know. From my, I haven't spoken to Primark yet, but from from uh, my instinct is that Primark, my belief and the belief of BBC insiders is that Primark is simply seizing on a small issue to discredit a program which was was actually brilliant, a brilliant program. Is that an issue of BBC lawyers letting down the program makers? 
I'm not sure about the, the yeah. I mean, it's, it's not so much the lawyers, or the just the, or the, the actual, but it is the, the, the actual procedure. procedure. Yeah, the fact that you can continue to complain and you can appeal against an original decision, and on it goes, on it goes, until finally you get the re- result you want. You know, in a court of law, you would just say, "This is it. We're drawing a line on this. You've lost." Mm. Seems that complainants can continue to uh, object over and over again. So, I think this is going to cause a bit of. Uh, friction, to say the least. Steve, uh, Channel 4 Chief Executive David Abram has been uh, uh, in the news because he was up in front of the uh, Media Select Committee uh, in Parliament, and of course they had a go at him over the Frankie Boyle joke. New fact that emerged, he's, he signed off the, uh, off the joke himself, and so, that, so the, the whole story came round, round again. Bit of an own goal not to apologise? Yeah, I think he's got this one slightly wrong. I mean, uh, you know, you don't have to be a fan of Katie Price to see that it was incredibly offensive. And, um, Even in he says, it, oh, in context and all the rest. But the thing is, people don't see it in context. They no, it absolutely context. not. He, he should have apologised. Yeah, OK. Um, let's do a bit of a hacking talk. Uh, so uh, this is your specialist subject. Uh, Ryan Giggs lawyers couldn't see Twitter, but they are going to have a crack at the news of the world. I know. Why, why? don't they? Why, why is he doing it? Gotcha. I mean, why? Just leave it, Ryan. Leave it. You're going to get, what, 40 grand out of this, but you will, you'll, you know, the notoriety is only going to get more... You're only going to become yes. more notorious. Because, because this is to do with... Uh, this is not to do with the uh, the stuff on Twitter about whatever, who, who, his affairs and all the rest of it. Mm. This is to do with phone hacking separately. Uh, I know all the, they all get bound up sometimes, but he was also one of the many people whose phones were hacked by Glenn Mulcair. Indeed. The, pri- the private investigator. Allegedly. Allegedly. So he's, he, he, if that turns out to be true, then, then he'll get a payoff. But, he's, but beyond that, right, he's, he, he's suing them over, uh, um, over that. He is suing them specifically over that fact that, yeah. you know, invasion of privacy, as others are. I mean, there is a link, actually, because um, the Mulcair was at his most active during the time when Giggs was having an affair, oh, right. allegedly, okay. I think, yeah. uh, with uh, his brother-in-law, his sister-in-law. So, so there is a link. I mean, that he, he, will, he will allege, I believe, that, that that is how they obtain that information. He may or may not be right. I love the fact as well that allegedly uh, Rebecca Wade was getting hacked. Yes, Indeed. I know. I know it's pretty Astounding. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, let, let's do a bit of social media. There's been talk, uh, well, there's been a lot of headlines this week around Facebook fatigue. This is because uh, 100,000 people in Britain deactivated their accounts last month and 6 million logged off in America. Has Facebook peaked, Steve? Have you, have you, have you gone off Facebook? Uh, well, I'm still, I'm still logged on. I'm probably not a very active user. I mean, yeah. I, mean I think there was an interesting stat coming through there because they looked at, I think, Norway and and the UK and maybe the US and what they were seeing was pretty much uh, half of of the population in these countries which are very broadband rich countries half will go on Facebook and once that once that level's been hit that that is it I think it's a bit of a non-story in the sense of look I mean you know Facebook is massive and the fact that a hundred thousand people may have logged off uh, in their charge towards one billion users is really neither here nor there there's two billion internet users on the planet so the target for one billion is bang on yeah. Yeah, although you make a very interesting point I mean it's about the active users isn't it I mean yeah. rather than the members I mean I've looked at I look at it a couple of times a year so I mean that's what advertisers should they ever make a success out of the business will, will, will want and also is there a thing coming down the track about privacy in Facebook Absolutely. it just seems to be that, that, that they're getting uh, uh, it in the neck of, of uh, the privacy quite well, I, mean, you, I mean you can change your settings obviously so people can't view your photos and yeah. stuff but people are, uh, are waking up to that fact that you know you've got people looking at your you know holiday photos or whatever, you, you, 
well, not me, but people in their bikinis or whatever. You yes. know? And, and it, it's a pervert's paradise, let's face it. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, it, it can, well, it's not just that, isn't it, Steve? It's the, you know, there's all sorts of stuff about if you, if, you, if you end up involved, even tangentially, in some kind of news story, suddenly all your, all your pictures can be all, all over the newspapers. And the PCC has brought out new guidelines on this this week, actually. But, I mean, it, it's, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? They, they don't make it uh, necessarily easy for you to be aware of the uh, privacy settings. I think that's really the issue. But, you know, the golden rule, I mean, it's the classic golden rule of everything to do with social media don't put stuff out there that yes. you don't want people to know about yes. but I will say there was just, sorry to the one it's photo book isn't it I mean Facebook it, if it wasn't if you couldn't share photos on Facebook no one would look at it I mean it, no, it's just true. so when I do wonder if someone else comes along that could Enabled you to do that easier and quicker and better. Well, it's, called, it's called Flickr, I think. Well, Flickr, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, no, but it's not, not the same yeah, social not dimension. The same social yeah. dimension on it, is there? Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll leave that there, and we won't be talking about any other types of photos that get released on the internet. Anthony Wiener. Uh, there's more on these stories, of course, at uh, mediaguide.co.uk. It's been a bad week for people pretending to be lesbians. At the start of the week, the Gay Girl in Damascus blog, which has featured in many news stories about the troubles in Syria, was revealed to be the work not of Amina Abdullah Arafal Amari, but instead it was the musings of the less exotically named Tom McMaster, a balding and bearded American living in Edinburgh. Around 24 hours later, a 58-year-old retired construction worker from Ohio called Bill was unmasked as the man, rather than the woman, behind the lesgetreal.com website a website for gay women. So, who to trust these days in the age of Twitter and Web 2.0? Andy Carvin is a senior strategist for NPR in New York. Uh, and since the new year, actually, he's been crowdsourcing and using Twitter to try and verify uh, much of the information that's been coming out of the Middle East via social media. We can speak to him now. Andy, um, you, you kind of uh, were one of the people who led the uh, investigation, if I can call it that, um, uh, into who was behind the Gay Girl in Damascus blog. How did you come first to be suspicious of Amina? Well, I think like most other people, I wasn't particularly suspicious while she was writing it. Uh, I would read it occasionally, found it to be an interesting blog, albeit somewhat melodramatic at times. Uh, But uh, it was interesting having that blog available for people who wanted some insight as to what was going on in Syria. But by the time that uh, her quote-unquote cousin reported on the blog that she had been kidnapped, the whole thing started to seem a little bit strange. Uh, You know, I, I was still quite concerned that there there might actually be a woman in, in Syria who had been uh, arrested by the authorities. But at the same time, I started hearing from uh, sources within Syria who were saying that they had never heard of her or met her in person. Uh, some of these sources came from within the local gay and lesbian community. And so that got me asking publicly on Twitter, had any people met her in person or knew of anyone who met her in person? And the more I asked the question, uh, the harder it got for me to find anyone who actually had met her in person now this is this is interesting because if you know if i ask people on twitter about something like that i'm not sure i would generate the response that you do you have fifty thousand followers almost so and there's definitely um an advantage in scale in all of this uh, isn't there and how, how did it all progress well, I think the advantage isn't necessarily the scale of it. It's just that I've really gone out of my way to try to cultivate followers who are in the Middle East since I've spent most of the last six months focusing on using Twitter as a news-gathering tool for the Arab Spring. And so uh, because of that, I already had a, a, a built-in community of people who knew a lot about the region and had strong networks themselves. And so uh, many of them had suggestions of people I should talk to, so it wasn't like I heard from no one. But as I would get those suggestions, 
I would contact them and would find that they hadn't talked to her either. I then started contacting news organizations that had interviewed her, and and they all acknowledged that the interviews took place via email and not in person or over uh, audio or video. And as I described this information uh, on Twitter, other people started digging in as well. And as I started to get more suspicious of, of gay girl in Damascus. Plenty of other people started getting suspicious as well. And so it ended up becoming this form of open source investigation with no one particular leading it. It was just various bloggers uh, and other people uh, via Twitter and other means uh, digging into what they could find on, on her uh, possible IP address, her location, people she might know. And the more we all found out and shared on Twitter, the more suspicious it got. Yeah, and we know how it all played out. Um, what are the implications, do you think, for this about – well, uh, there's, there's a number of implications. Let's talk, talk a bit about um, anonymity on the net. Does it make it harder for uh, people to ver- verify what other people are saying? Well, sure. It's it's harder to verify what people are saying, but we also have to consider the circumstances. This is a person who is claiming to be in Syria, one of, one of the most closed countries in the world. It's like – trying to verify someone who's in North Korea, for example. It's, it's, it's not the easiest thing to do. If this had been gay girl in Scotland or gay girl even in Lebanon, for example, there were people there that we could have talked to or we could have been there ourselves asking questions and trying to track down the story. But because it was specifically gay girl in Damascus, it made it next to impossible to have people on the ground doing, the, doing serious investigation for us. So, uh, yes, the Internet does make it hard to, harder to track down people, but I don't think we should forget the circumstances that this person claimed to be in. Uh, You you talked about um, uh, Twitter, the use of uh, Twitter as an an investigating tool, how you use it. Has has this this event changed your perception or reinforced any of your perceptions about um, how, how you use Twitter? Not really, because this is essentially what I've been doing on Twitter uh, for the Middle East, at least for the last six months, give or take, ever since uh, the Tunisia uprising began. Uh, I I don't have a particular news beat at uh, NPR. In fact, I'm not even uh, uh, an actual reporter or journalist there. I work on the digital side of the company. But I also have a strong base of of followers on Twitter, and it's uh, a group of people that are really smart and informed and are in many different parts of the world world. And so as the uh, investigation progressed, it was possible for uh, me to tap into all of that knowledge and skills these people had. Okay, Andy Carvin, thanks very much. Uh, James, I mean, lots of stuff that really that we, we could pick up on there. Well, um, uh, just on one of the final points that Andy Carvin made, he said, oh, I'm, I'm not, it was quite modest, really, saying I, well, I'm not a journalist, I'm, uh, I work on the digital side. But this is journalism that he's doing, isn't it? Indeed, well, it is, and it's journalism we're all, of, all of us are doing increasingly, isn't it? Mm. But it's just, it, I think it's, a, it's just a reminder that we need to, I suppose, as responsible news organisations, if you like, you know, we need to be sceptical. or I mean, we need health warnings, essentially, don't yeah. we? On, on, on blogs and quotes that cannot be identified, which, we, which of course, we all usually do. You know? Because uh, because The Guardian was take, taken in by this. We published pictures of that were purported mm. to be for her, turn, t- turned out not, not to be. There's salutary lessons all around, aren't there? Yeah, I think that's right. It's just pause for thought and just, you know, uh, you can be too credulous sometimes, I guess. Mm. And I thought it was really interesting, uh, Steve, how uh, how he used his... Uh, Carvin has built up this kind of all these networks he's, he, uh, of people and contacts that he's done... All 
call from his desk in in in, in New York, and now is able to put having put all that work in, is able to, to you know just call out to the people that he knows and say and start to raise questions and put people together and and, and come up with some really interesting answers. Well, there's a slight irony because the the one thing that's being blamed for the lack of verification, which is the fact that well it was over the web and and it's in a closed society, is is the very tool which has led to the to the uncovering. And I think yes, I'm, it was the internet that found out. Yeah, that, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm 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 the non-journalist in the room, so mm. maybe I'm, I'm I come I come from a bit more of a, of a cynical viewpoint, but. Surely there's 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 a real lazy uh, so, sort of sub subtext going through this, which is, I mean, it, isn't it just 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 the basic thing of trying to verify a source? And I know that that can be very difficult, mm. but but you know, lots of very very significant news organisations have got caught out with both of these yeah. blogs, and it and it seems it seems surely just accepting an interview over email is is a pretty lazy way to go about doing an interview. Yeah, I think so, and and, and I think I think as well, and I think what also is lazy is is the which you touched on. Is, is the is the quick uh, the, how quickly mainstream media has been sort of blame the, in, the the internet where whereas it was actually mainstream media who got who got taken in and it was the internet who found who, who found out the truth. Well, I mean, the person who's to blame is the is sorry, I've forgotten his name. The, Tom McMaster. Yeah, Tom McMaster. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, I mean, yeah. quite. I mean, let's, let's get the, the, the portion of blame yeah, properly yeah. here. But I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, there is an element of I hesitate to use the word lazy, but I mean, uh, you know, it's just a case of where you can't verify a source, say that the source claims to be someone, yeah. or I mean, it's a standard good practice, I guess. Okay, um, uh, thank you both. There's uh, more on this at uh, guardian.co.uk. Guardian.co.uk's TV editor Vicky Frost is here. Uh, Vicky, I think you've done something I can safely say that none of the rest of us here have ever done. You've commissioned a hat. I have commissioned a hat. What in what in, in what context? Uh, for my wedding. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's very nice. It, it, it makes a it makes a change from commissioning lots of useless writers to write stuff that you then have to rewrite. Yes. Um, did you think I was commissioning a hat for work? That no, would have I, been d- much I don't better. know. It would have been. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, inter- interesting. Apparently, having just talked about Syrian lesbians, your uh, your handbag is all the way from Damascus. I hear it is from Damascus, and I'm slightly worried on. No, no, that's very trivial. I can't say that. Okay. I'm very worried I'll never get another one. Right. I, feel like, I feel like I've I feel like I've dropped dropped into a Gok One program. Uh, listen, it's it's been a long show. Uh, We're going to squeeze it down to the essentials. Camelot really was a load of rubbish, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Rubbish with boobs. That's what it is, really. (laughs) James, well, I I hope you stayed right right to the very end uh, because you got got to see Eva Green completely... um Yes. No, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'd lost interest. Oh dear. Um, uh, genuinely terrible was Luther. Oh, Luther! The thing with Luther that I particularly love is if you watch it, uh, every five minutes somebody asks him about his wife. Just anyone he meets, you know, really? criminals, just people on the street, people at work. Everyone always seems to have some line about. So, how's your wife? So he can go. Ooh, and be troubled for a few minutes. Um, yeah, it's totally ludicrous. I mean, well done. Five point six ridiculous. million and twenty percent share. Well, yeah, exactly. What can what, I what, say? Sorry, can I just ask what is the most ludicrous thing about it? Just uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, where to start? I think it's how seriously it takes itself when it is so ridiculous. That's the thing that sort of mm. amps up. And also, you know, it's very much. It's very much, he just goes around saving women. And, and it's, you know, it's that old thing, isn't it? It's just loads of women going, help, help, or being totally mad. That's the only women in it, basically. 
victims or mental. Mm. <laughs> this, well, this is well. That's, that's obviously a crime drama, East London crime drama. But there's um, um, more excitement from Denmark. Oh, there is uh, excitement is from Denmark. B- uh, BBC Four. They've, um, and it is the same people that, that made the killing that have made this. It's called Government, isn't it? This, yeah, well, way. yes. Although I think that's what they were going to call it. But now they're actually going to use Borgen, which is what it's called in Danish. Oh, is it? Is it? Is it one of those words that can't be directly translated? Yes, because. Um, what well, I believe that Borgen it sort of refers to their parliament building. Right. So it is government, but actually it's a play on, you know, various things. So, uh, yeah, but I think we can cope with that. I don't think we need... Government sounds a bit dull, frankly. It's, it not, does. it's not a program I'd want to tune into necessarily. <laughs> oh, what are you watching? Government. <laughs> it's very BBC4, though, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Um, and I think it's going to run basically later this year. So I think what will happen... I think what will happen is we'll probably get the second episode, second series of The Killing. Oh, right. And then we'll have this sometime after that. So there's just going to be... There'll be Danish drama basically for the rest of the, of the whole year, probably. Basically, everyone else will be watching X Factor... I will be watching things in Danish. <laughs> yes. Perhaps we can weave Sandy Toxford into it somehow. Perhaps we can do it. And, uh, yeah. uh, did anyone watch the Terry Pratchett documentary? Oh, yeah. Yeah? What do you think? I thought it was brilliantly done. Mm. Ter- I mean, terribly difficult to watch in places. And I thought it was rather a shame that all the furore about sort of someone's going to die on camera kind of rather overtook the fact that it was a really very good, strongly authored and argued documentary and... It had loads of really interesting things to say, and I think it that slightly got lost in all the all the mm. controversy around it, which I thought was a shame because it was really interesting and and, and really eye opening. I think. Uh, quick uh, look at what's coming up: Shadow, final Shadowline this week, so that that'll, that'll be fabulous. Uh, it, yes, it Did, is. Steve, you like this? Oh, this has been a highlight for me the past the past few months. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it seems to have gone under the radar a bit. I mean, I don't I, I don't know what we the have talked about have been, but... every week on on this program. Yeah, well, we have because I started off being very unsure, and I'm kind of uh, enjoying it more as 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 it's gone along. It's lost an awful lot of viewers. It's, it really did shed viewers from the beginning which is a shame because I think it's actually improved as it's gone along and last week's episode was amazing and tonight's has a very good twist I think it's a classic show that's going to do really well as a DVD box set oh, yeah, you know yeah, when you yeah. can watch watch the programmes much more continuously Claudia Winkleman has got a new chat show Claudia Winkleman well it, it's, it's sort four. of a chat show it's more sort of a formatted entertainment show I oh yes I know the kind that, that, you, that you mean I'm trying to remember that Welsh singer got, uh, had one and there's Alan Kaiser like that isn't <laughs> that it Welsh you know what else her name Charlotte Church she had a four, formatted thingy that was mostly a chat show but she sang in it uh, I, presumably Claudia Winkleman isn't good to sing but well no no she doesn't it, it's less a chat show than that actually right. I think to be fair so is it terrible no it's not terrible right. and I think Claudia Winkleman I mean I couldn't believe what how hard a time she had over film 2011 I thought she was very good on that I she's very good <laughs> it's just totally because she's a woman yeah. I mean if you know she's not a geeky man basically and she's got all kinds of terrible stuff said about her um, this is quite interesting because it's her on Channel 4, she's normally on the BBC, so it's her on Channel 4, and she's slightly left off the leash a bit, and I think as a result she's a, you know, she's an awful lot funnier. Um, and I I seriously think she's great. And, and it's interesting as well, you know, Channel 4 is sort of saying, well, you know, she's a woman, she's doing a comedy show on a Friday night, and actually you don't have many women do that kind of thing. They have lots of funny female guests. Uh, it's not groundbreaking TV, but it's quite jolly, and I quite like her in it. Uh, James, are you a fan of Claudia? A massive fan. Mm. I absolutely adore her. I've interviewed her at least once, and I'm, and I, and I'm a really good she friend is of her dad's. Very, stepdad's. She, she is very funny. 
No, she's good fun. She's good. I'm glad that she's been on leash because you know because she, I, she was on. She's always been on very restrictive shows. Strictly Come Dancing. The, yeah. The, the, uh, what was it called? The, the, the extra. Show, the extra. Show. Yeah. It takes you know, two. It's, it's very difficult to be yourself, isn't it? And I think she's very intelligent, and very witty, and. No, I'm really pleased. I'm looking forward to watching it, actually. Okay, great. Uh, thank you very much. Well, I think we'll leave, we'll leave that there. Thank you, Vicky, for your contribution. Um, uh, but that is pretty much it, actually. Before you go, though, uh, Vicky, James, and Steve, tell us what you've uh, something that you've learned in the last seven days in Media Land. Steve, uh, starting with you first. Well, Matt Deegan wrote a very, very interesting blog a few weeks back about Twitter and broadcasters and how uh, maybe broadcasters are a little bit too over-obsessed with Twitter. Say, and who, say who Matt Deegan is. Matt Deegan is a guy from Folder Media, which is a company that runs a number of uh, radio stations and does a lot digital work as well but but he, he he often blogs and and he's he's you know he he, he was very insightful I'd, I'd i'd recommend to read it but the um the interesting stat that i learned this week that sort of backs up what matt says and i hope i got this right is that um five live gets more texts in one month than if you added together all the retweets from all the bbc radio programs in one month more text than, than retweets and if you use retweet as a measure of engagement with the audience or interactivity that's really interesting, that is really interesting. Um, uh, you, you should just give us a plug for your new book James because you've got a new book out I, I will have shortly what, yes. what is it? yes I can announce exclusively on your show <laughs> that I have written <laughs> The Diaries of the Downing Street Cat uh, Larry the Cat so that's going to be out in September I'm, as told to me I'm, I was going to say I'm assuming that this is a fictional fictional line no no it's all absolutely accurate it's exactly what happened no it is it is fictional <laughs> uh, it's like what the cat saw right? you know, it's not like what the butler saw but what how the cat did saw you be, how did you how, I just but God knows why, well you I said I couldn't you, you, were, you expressed surprise at the idea that I might be able to write Write an MA, I think, not so many weeks ago. <laughs> off there. So, but I suppose the fact that I've written a book is going to—I'm surprised you're still standing or sitting. I'm sure. I'm sure that. I'm sure that wasn't me. Um, so, <laughs> and I say you haven't brooded on that. No, I've, not, I've forgotten all about it. <laughs> um, is it going to be a bestseller? Uh, no. I'm sure. <laughs> of course it is. Simon and Schuster are publishing it. It can't fail. No. It's going to be like the, the next Eat Shoots and Leaves. Free advertising in the Guardian, hit. presumably. Well, I'm quite yeah, I'm going to interview Larry the in Cat. The Guardian. You're going to interview Larry the Cat for the magazine. It's going to be serialised. Um, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely hilariously funny. So I'm trying to think cat of cat jokes. <laughs> yes, I'm, I've heard them all. Eight out of ten readers prefer it, yes. Um, uh, uh, Vicky, what about you? What did you learn this week? I've learnt this week that Lorraine Kelly doesn't like to dress up in the bedroom. It- <laughs> <laughs> well, she just goes... That's already an image too, too uh, far. <laughs> where, did you, where did you learn this? She told you. Well, she didn't exactly tell me. Right. She told a television audience. I see. So you and lots of other people learned that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so thank you to Steve Ackerman, Vicky Frost and James Robertson. Uh, our blog and Twitter details are at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk. That's where you can go to flag up everything that we got wrong. Uh, Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. He's the cover star and the subject of the main interview in this week's radio magazine, by the way. It's, uh, it's not quite attitude, but it's a good start, Ben. Uh, I'm Matt Wells. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.